this is the new episode of Firewall. Uh, I am not your host, Bradley Tusk. In fact, uh, my name is Hugo Lindgren. I've been uh, on the podcast a few times in the last several months. And this, I believe, is the first Firewall recording ever without Bradley. I could be wrong about that, but I think that's the case. Uh, He is traveling for business, um, but we have... In his place, a representative from uh, from the Tusk Empire, as it were, Bob Greenlee, who runs the Chicago office. He works on strategy and venture. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Bob. Hey, Hugo. How are you? I'm, I'm good. Now, the last time you were on, you came on to talk about Bitcoin. You did a great job actually kind of walking us through that kind of nefarious world. Um, today, we're going to... Um, uh, we're going to talk about some fun stuff. Uh, m- mostly, uh, what we're going to try to get to is, is some of the work you're doing on behalf of uh, of wolves, the actual the animal wolves. Um, and uh, before we get to that, though, I, I thought it might be helpful to readers or to listeners. There are no readers of this podcast um, to tell them a little bit about you. Uh, I, I have your bio here, but but maybe you could run through it quickly because um, it, it's pretty interesting, a little unusual for for someone in in your field. You have some 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 pretty pretty interesting sort of experiences. You want to you want to tell us a little bit about who you are? Sure, sure. No, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm Bob Greenlee. Run the Chicago office, as you said. Um, I am a, I'm originally a Floridian. Um, I'm a half, I guess you'd say, uh, fourth generation Floridian, which is a little unusual from outside of Orlando. Um, my uh, grew up around um, art. My mother's a writer. My dad is uh, was a First, I guess you'd call him a punk musician, then a blues musician, and then a blues producer. Wait, wait, um, stop with, me there for one second, Bob. Um, yeah. You told me about the blues, but I don't know the punk part of it. What it fill me in on the punk part of that for one so, second. So uh, my dad played in the 70s with, I don't even know what you'd call them, uh, a group called Root Boy Slim and the Sex Change Band. Um, <laughs> they were, as they say, big with the Carter administration. Um, and. Uh, big with the Carter administration? I think people do say that. I think that's a thing people talk about is being big with the Carter administration. <laughs> it's kind of having a rebirth. Um, but yeah, no, uh, Rupois, the whole thing was a, um, it was, you know, you'd say before it's time, let's say outside it's time. Rupoy Slim was like a larger than life figure. His, uh, his no, most famous uh, theme song was Boogie Till You Puke. Um, which was uh, a song that if you um, Spotify it, and I, I really recommend that you do because my dad has um, songwriting credits and I get paid for it. Um, it, uh, it it largely involves people drinking a lot and throwing up. And the, the highlight of the stage show was him getting up, Rupoy Slim, who's kind of a corpulent, um, kind of str- and like stringy haired, not really well put together dude, getting up on stage and throwing up at the end of the song. So it was like, it had like a very punk vibe but it was also like American roots music. And I think um, after my dad, um, who'd been living kind of out in the country in Florida while he produced all this stuff, got out of the kind of the popular music scene. Um, and they did kind of two major label albums in the 70s and then that, that kind of disappeared. He got more into, let's call it uh, American traditional music, particularly like blues. Now, Bob, you have these sort of bohemian Floridian parents, which is you know, almost an oxymoron in, in, in my limited worldview. Um, but you grew up to be a football player. I did. I um, So my dad, in addition to being a bohemian, played football at Yale. Um, I also played football at Yale, uh, studied uh, studied religion and philosophy there, and I um, was the shame of my family. Instead of kind of going off on a more bohemian path, I went straight to law school. 
Um, went to U of C where I met Bradley. Um, and uh, after law school, I continued to stay in Chicago, practice law, but also kind of hang around the university and ultimately got a PhD in the history of religion. So I'm a wow. uh, I am uh, the only person who's a religious studies scholar at Tusk. I can say that with certainty. So as I mentioned, we're going to get to to the work you're doing on behalf of Wolves. But before we get to that, I just want to talk about a couple of things that are in the news that that we've been chatting about earlier. Um, And that, I guess the first question, because I... I, I'm amazed at the the extent to which the kind of free Britney Spears uh, meme has taken over the country. Uh, maybe that's because I spend too much time on Twitter, but but it, there actually is kind of an interesting and important issue there about guardianship, um, whether it's unfair. Anyway, I'm, I'm curious to your view on it. Why, why has why has the free Britney sort of movement struck such a chord? Sure. I mean, like everybody else, I'm also pre pro Britney. So I'll say that from the outset. Um, here's why I think it struck a chord for me. The question really is about fundamental fairness. And I think a lot of people, you know, maybe because of Twitter, maybe because she's a celebrity or otherwise, really are able to put themselves in Britney Spears' shoes. And they're looking at it and they're saying she had this conservatorship placed on her. And there's a question of, like, how can she prove that she's stable again? And it's a real problem with the law that that she has no say in her own conservatorship. Once it's placed... The law assumes that she's not competent to speak for herself. And that's, it's crazy. It's somewhat ableist and it's its what I like to call non-falsifiable. How can she legally prove that she is okay? And she can't, I mean, legally she can't do it. And that's, you know, it's a its an untenable situation. I mean, I think people looking back on it now say the conservatorship should never have been applied. It was the wrong standard. It's only useful for someone who's never going to be um, in a position where they can speak for themselves. And honestly, you know, we really need to rethink how these things work in the first place. Yeah. Now, I will tell you personally, I have a, a relative who has a profoundly autistic child um, who's now in his 20s. In order to do all the things that he needs to do as a caregiver for someone above a certain age, he needed to establish a conservatorship. So there are situations where it is important legally, but it's just such a problem, um, and it's such a problem because able, you know, the the spectrum of ability is a spectrum, and this idea that you can use a one size fits all to stop it is, you know, is kind of hard to fathom. Yeah. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this story is just how kind of emotional and personal it is, and maybe that's because it involves a celebrity. It probably is because it involves a celebrity, but it does seem to be kind of emblematic of the way the culture is today, where where. You know, there's no sort of like, oh, people are curious about something and they want to find out more and they want to, you know, learn about it. They just sort of take a stand that they want to, you know, like orient their lives around. Is that something you agree with or or or, or I'm wondering if, if how it affects your, you know, your line of work? Well, I mean, look, in what we do, we pay attention to social media quite a lot. We use social media quite a lot as a tool to reach out to people and to connect with them. And I think you're right. People do feel like they want to take a stand. They become more polarized because they see themselves and issues as kind of a polar issue. Um, and it does gravitate towards that. I don't love that about social media. I mean, it's very clear that the, you know, the conservatorship issue is not black and white. 
Although for me, the Britney Spears, uh, you know, scenario is black and white. I mean, they need to end it. Um, but it does. Um, it's interesting to me. Like, I think social without social media, obviously, we wouldn't have had the movement. And we wouldn't have had the movement because people really um, connect. They connect with people. And you feel like you develop relationships with people through social media that are in some sense real. Um, and with celebrities and people whose social medias may not be them themselves, but rather the impression they want to have of people, that leads to a very, a very weird dynamic. Now, the other, the other sort of news item that I wanted to ask you about involves Facebook, which there's sort of two things kind of floating around out there right this minute. One, there's this kind of big broadside of a book by two New York Times reporters um, uh, that seems sort of highly critical of Facebook. And there have been some, there's an excerpt that was all about the falling out between Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg. Um, and then there's a, another new report in the Times by Matt Rictel, who, who wrote about um, this, the, the ways in which uh, uh, Facebook kind of amplifies sort of right-wing engagement uh, to a much greater extent than, than, than other kinds of sort of political leanings. I, I was curious, it just feels like there's this, swelling um, kind of resistance or opposition to Facebook. I'm curious to, to know how serious you think that is. Facebook is still obviously a gigantic company, extremely profitable. Um, is this, how big, a, how big a concern is this for Facebook? So let's talk short term and, and let's talk long term. I mean, in the short term, it's not a big concern for Facebook, right? Facebook has a product that people use and people are, honestly, I would say maybe addicted to. Um, so over the short term, nothing that any single story is going to do is going to cause them problems. Um, over the long term, it is a problem. I saw in the news this morning, there was a there was a study done on trust of various types of, um, you know, uh, let's call them organizations. And big business had among the lowest trust of any of the group studied. The, the trust you know, public trust in big business was at like 18%. And one of the reasons is what we see with like the Exxon stuff lately. Big business behaves, what we call big business behaves badly, right? They fund fake science. They do things where they look like they're, you know, greenwashing. They look like they're supporting climate change and supporting ways to get around it, but really they're just trying to move the ball along and you get nothing done. So when we hear that Facebook is, you know, looking at something that's a real problem, like um, suppressing stories about the way in which their algorithms are playing with human emotions um, for their own financial gain, that sounds a lot like what big business does. Right. And when people equate big Facebook with big business and not with innovation or their service, that's going to hurt their scores and it's going to leave them wide open for more regulation. How does this come up in, in, in your work with clients? Do you, do you encounter stuff where you know, say they have an issue and they want to do something that's really pretty superficial and maybe even dishonest in terms of representing themselves in a certain way. Does that happen a lot? And then you have to be like, well, that's not going to work in the long term. And you have to talk them out of stuff like that. Or what kind of position does that leave you in? It does. I mean, it does. I, you know, you have a lot of one of the things we deal with is we deal with a lot of clients who are in crisis. And when you know this from your lives and from the lives of those around you, when people are in crisis, they flounder and they come up with lots of ideas that they think might work, but just really aren't good ideas. 
Um, and part of our job is to remind clients when they have an idea that's not a really good idea, that it's not a really good idea. Um, and that's like one class of them. The ideas of rather than taking a hard look at, you know, hard look at yourself, in this case as a corporate entity, um, but yourself personally and saying, okay, what's the root cause here and what should I do differently? You know, you want to say, what is this superficial thing I can do to solve the situation? Right. And one of the things we will tell clients is, you can get a short term, if what you're trying to do, honestly, is get out of the news cycle, maybe something like that will get you out of the news cycle, but it's just gonna get you back in the news cycle later when you didn't follow through with it. So right. the bigger question is confront the root causes, find ways to actually make a difference in a problem, and then you know move forward and move forward in an authentic way. I mean, that's always the right answer in the long run. Right, and do you think, I mean, it, it sounds like what Facebook does is a lot of inauthentic stuff. I mean, so they're kind of learning the hard way. And, and what's, what's interesting is just how they seem to make the same kind of mistakes over and over again. Although, again, are they mistakes? They don't seem to affect the bottom line all that much. I don't think they're mistakes. I think this is the way that they are. I think, I mean, mistake, there's, I, what I would say is I don't think what they're doing is accidental. It may be a mistake, but that's a different question, Right. I, th I don't think what they're doing is accidental. I think Facebook has an idea that they are fundamentally amoral um, and that they are trying to be a neutral platform that serves everyone's needs. Um, and the reality is that what they look at as amoral or neutral is, is impossible. I mean, we know that there is no neutral platform and that if you believe that you are serving everyone neutrally, that you are going to be hurting people and that you're going to be promoting things that end up hurting people. So there is no ability to not take a stand. Sometimes you have to take a stand. And that's, right. the, that's the lesson that Facebook will ultimately need to lead or to learn. And when they do, that's, that will define who they are as a company. Right. Okay, let's get to, let's get to the wolves. Why don't, why don't you give us a little um, background on, on, on how Tusk got to this, uh, got to this cause. Uh, it's, I, I, in, in a lot of ways, knowing as I do a, a lot of what Tusk does, it's, it's, it's not that unusual because the one thing that characterizes Tusk is a pretty wide variety of, of clients and, and campaigns. It's not one thing or another. It's, it's, it's a whole lot of things. Um, but still, for, for people who think of, of Tusk you know, around New York politics and, and, and some of the things that make news an awful lot, at least in New York, um, th this seems like an unusual outlier. T tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, and you're right. It would to to some people who think of us as a New York operation or an operation that looks at you know the cutting edge of tech, which are those are both things that are true. We also do a lot more. I mean, obviously, in our philanthropy side, you've probably heard a little bit about getting people to vote with their mobile phones. That's a that's something <laughs> that, comes that, up, that comes up a little bit on the podcast. I don't know if you're yeah, I, I'm not <laughs> surprised by that. I'm a little surprised that wolves haven't come up more. Um, but so the, uh, the answer is this, we, um, we are always aware of, of what's going on in the news. We, you know, we obviously have networks and we talk to people about a lot of social issues. The issue about wolves has actually been one that's been on our radar screen, um, for the better part of this year. Um, this idea that they were delisted, um, from the endangered species act. And we can talk a lot more about the details in a minute, but this is something that is, um, that we were kind of aware of, we became aware of, of some of the results of them. And I'll really go into depth about the tragic results and what we could see that's even more tragic in the future. But we got put in contact with a group of people who said, we know you, Tusk, are good at running campaigns. 
We also know this is an important issue and it's an issue that can't wait. We have to work to resolve this and to, to hope that the federal government takes a stand quickly to resolve this issue. Um, and we were really excited to, to have an opportunity to help out because this is an issue that can't wait. Um, it's an issue that, that really should matter to all of us because it really relates to a lot of the ways that people think about the Endangered Species Act and the relationship between you know, people in the natural world more generally. And it touches on a lot of other political issues. So we've been, we've been getting engaged with it and we've been starting to, uh, starting to coordinate and build a coalition to get the um, federal government and particularly the Department of Interior to act as soon as possible on relisting wolves. So let's let's back up for a minute and and talk about when were uh, wolves uh, delisted from the endangered species list, and, and what was the reason for that? Sure. And so I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna geek out a little bit. So I apologize. So we we are talking particularly about gray wolves, which are okay. like you know the um, the apex predator that you imagine when you imagine a wolf. They're like never cry wolves kind of wolves. Um, and wolves have over the, you know, wolves used to be native across the country over the course of the 19th century. And before conservation became well known, wolves were hunted to extinction across most of the United States, most of the continental United States, um, with a little bit of a small exception in Minnesota, where there were still um, some wolves in, in the, kind of the rural northern foresty parts of the state. Um, with the advent of the Endangered Species Act and protection, wolves have started to come back, particularly across the Rocky Mountains, through the upper Midwest Great Lakes states, um, and even you know, kind of along the, let's say, less uh, urbanized West. Um, in the early part of the, you know, in let's say around 2010, um, Senator Tester from Montana cut a deal to delist wolves, gray wolves in Montana as um, something that would help him politically. And I will explain, I'm gonna take a step back to say, how could you know allowing people to kill wolves help politically? The answer to that is in places in which there's, in rural areas where there's a lot of livestock ranching, um, you have the little red riding hood phenomenon, right? If there are sheep around wolves, wolves are a predator and wolves will kill them. If there are cattle around wolves, wolves are a predator. Um, there are legal ways in which this is dealt with under federal law and under many states laws. If an animal, if someone's livestock is predated, is killed by a wolf, you're able to get sometimes as much as eight times the value of your livestock as eight a result times? of that activity. Yes, it's, uh, it is a, you know, a very profitable thing to happen. That being said, um, livestock producers do not like wolves. They do not want wolves around. Um, and there are, you know, there are some groups of people, not all, um, who believe in trapping wolves and in the historic cultural associations they have with being trappers and with having wolf pelts. So for those types of people, um, this idea of delisting wolves and the ability to, again, hunt for them or trap them is attractive. Now, this is um, a tiny group of people. I mean, uh, uh, people who have large holdings of livestock in Western states where, where wolves have returned is, I mean, it, it must number in the low thousands, if, if that, right? I, 
the only number for our purposes that's lower than that is the number of wolves. I mean, the number of wolves is numbers, you know, below the thousands. So, yes, this is a is an issue materially and in terms of, you know, economics for a small number of people. Um, it is an issue that has turned out to have wedge cultural significance for a lot of people. And that's why this national delisting occurred. Um, the national delisting occurred in October of 2020. It was a late Trump administration action, not supported at all by the science that would allow for delisting, but done in order to court rural voters and to get rural voters to get excited about voting for Trump. There's nothing more that should be said about it. It was not a you know, there's nothing that happened in the Trump administration that was particularly science based. And this was particularly not science based as well. So it weakened the fundamental. This is a little bit like the Britney thing we're talking about anyway, in the sense that that so there's a small number of affected people. Um, but it's a it's a very emotional issue for some larger group of people. It is. There are you know, if you go to a Montana or a Wisconsin there's a huge divide between people who feel a strong cultural affinity towards wolves and towards their role and their what they signify for the wild. And there's a huge group of people or there's a significant group of people who feel a cultural affinity towards, you know, towards livestock and towards being animal husbanders, whatever you call that, husbands, towards husbandry, towards watching their livestock and to protecting them against wolves. And this is... You know, this is like a very basic human issue of do, you know, what is our relationship to nature? Is our relationship one in which we have dominion over nature and which is like one way of looking at the world? Or is our relationship one that we have to work as part of the, you know, um, Lion King circle of life where we're a part of nature? And that that real dichotomy is fueling a lot of this. Now, what... For, I, I want to ask one small question. Do wolves ever attack humans? Is that is that rare? Um, it is rare. It is not impossible. Wolves can attack humans, but there are there are very few wolves, and wolves are not going out looking to attack humans. It's those situations in which a human happens. It's like not unlike a bear, where a human happens to be in a situation um, in which they are you know, in a wolf's territory or around a wolf's family, and a wolf feels like they have no other alternative. The, you know, the preferred outcome is for wolves is to avoid contact, avoid initiation, initiating issues. But there is, you know, not unlike bears, there are situations in which a predator meeting up with a human can be a problem. And it is, um, you know, for people who live in areas around wolves, this is an issue, this is a, a thing that they confront. But I think the the reality, and this is this is I think the like law of small numbers kind of issue. If the issue were really one of people defending themselves against wolves who are pending to attack them, that wouldn't be an endangered species issue. The real issue is is this. So once the Endangered Species Act was lifted, that meant that states had control over how wolves were protected. So the state of Wisconsin, for example, where there are, let's say, 2,000 wolves in total, decided that in order to effectively manage and conserve the wolf population, they would allow not a pure restriction in the way that like Illinois, where I lived, wolves are still on the Illinois Endangered Species Act. They're still completely protected. 
Illinois or Wisconsin decided they'd have a two-day hunting season. And in that two-day hunting season of the 2,000-ish wolves, within that season, it was a bumper crop for wolves. And roughly 600 wolves ended up getting killed. So, you know, we're looking at 30% of the population of wolves in the state of Wisconsin were killed in two days. Wow. And that's what, that's what you talk about when you say, what is at stake? It's that. It's that in Montana now they pass laws to allow trapping and snaring and inhumane treatment. In Idaho, they're restoring wolf hunts as well. That, you know, you can predict what's going to happen, but you can't control it. And right. that's the... That's the tremendous risk here. So, so what what are you doing? What is Tusk doing in in a, in a state like Wisconsin? Or, or I know you're active in Montana. What what uh, what's the what's the what's the activity? What's the work? So, our work actually on this is we are working in states where we know that this is an issue, as well as at the federal level, to bring awareness to the issue and to bring awareness, particularly among people who have an affinity for wolves, both individuals and groups, that now is the time we need to act. That the hunts that we're starting to see in Wisconsin are gonna be repeated in Idaho and in Wyoming over the coming months. And to the extent that they are, that there's a real risk of losing decades on the reintroduction of wolves uh, into the lower 48. Um, so. What we are doing is we are doing, you know, as you said, we're using social media as a vehicle. We're using, we're getting groups to organize their members. And we're asking all the members and all the elected officials who care about this issue to advise the Department of Interior that really this is an issue that needs to be dealt with now. Um, it's an issue, we have a lot of explanations, a lot of rational explanations for why the, you know, the Trump decision to delist what did not comport with the science, failed to take into account the impact of climate change. Kind of a lot of reasons that are very straightforward, but we're also, it's not just a question of why act, it's a question of why you need to act now. And that's the urgency is what we're bringing to the table. So what kind of what kind of feedback are you getting from the Biden administration? Are they receptive? Are they, are they aware? Are they, I mean, they got a lot on their plate, obviously. As, as you said, it's, the President Biden actually um, did a segment um, did a segment on wolves earlier this year, and he has said, and the administration has said that they will pursue relisting. Um, and what so the the answer is we know that the sympathy is there. We know that this is an issue that the administration understands was wrongly decided in late in the late Trump era. We know that they have made a policy priority of undoing those kind of poor decisions of you know prior administrations. Um, and we know that they want to do something about this now. The question is, as you said, Hugo, is there are a million competing priorities, large infrastructure, soft infrastructure, you know, trying to address COVID and the, you know, the reflare up of the Delta variant, you know, just to name three, trying to get a budget passed. Um, we want to make sure that this issue gets to the top of the pile or higher up on the priority list because it's one that really can't wait. Now, it's it's especially these days it's very uh, commonly observed that the U.S. Senate, um, as a as a general body, uh, privileges the 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 rights of 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 sort of low lowly populated rural states over over the rest of us. So this would seem to be an issue where you know the Montanas. Um, of the world have a have a have a significant 
advantage. Um, how does that affect what the Biden administration is going to do? Is this is it a concern that this is just a battle they don't want to take on right now because because of all this other stuff they have to deal with? I, you know, I'd love to think that even though um, I know that the administration faces a lot of competing priorities, and I know that, for example, that uh, the Department of the Interior was decimated by kind of the, the prior secretary and the prior direction, um, knowing and understanding that you need to teach yourself how to walk and to reorganize an organization, that that you do have choices to make. And you, ha- you do have to say, do we want to alienate you know, the Montana delegation? Do we want to make, do we want to alienate Senator Tester at a time when, uh, you know, we're going to need his vote. We're going to need every Senator's vote we can uh, to get reconciliation passed and to get our infrastructure bill passed. Yeah. These are questions that do come up and they, they're ones that matter, but we do think that this is something that with all those considerations that need to be made, I continue to think that we have faith in the Biden administration, that they'll do the right thing. And, you know, as we tell a lot of our clients, if we know we're going to do the right thing, and this is kind of touching on what we talked about with the Facebook stuff earlier, if you're going to do the right thing, do the right thing now and get credit for it. Don't do the right thing too late and look like you wasted the opportunity. Right. Take it, you know, take credit now, do it quickly, get that, you know, do what you need to do um, and get the win. How is this issue related to sort of other kind of political issues uh, in the uh, in the country? What 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 is what does the wolves situation tell us about how we need to respond to other things? So it's you know the biggest situation, and if you want to say like what are big political issues right now, um, the biggest one obviously is the infrastructure bill, but more broadly, what does this look like for twenty twenty four? Um, and I tend to think that this wolves issue plays a, you know, has a huge lesson to be learned here. Um, and the lesson to be learned is the Biden administration continues and, and has made a priority from its inception to look at ways to promote the rural economy and to make it sure that um, that the Democratic Party is not losing rural America. And I think that that's one of the biggest headwinds that the wolves issue faces potentially is that there is a sense or that there will be a concern that by supporting wolves and supporting the science that we're somehow opposed to the values of rural America. And one of the things that's most important for us at Tusk is to make sure that we can communicate both to um, the administration that the values of rural America aren't really anti-wolf, but that's the, that's the values that are being communicated by the few who would like to co-opt the voice of rural America for their own economic interests. Um, and more importantly, to make sure that the voices and the, the much more diverse set of voices that rural America represents, tribal voices, voices in agriculture, hunters and trappers who have a different perspective all can make their voice, you know, make it clear that they're not speaking with one voice and that there are issues that there are divergences of opinions on, like an issue like the wolves, and that make it clear that you can win in rural America by supporting issues that are pro-conservation, by supporting issues that are pro-tribal, that are by supporting issues that, um, you know, show compassion towards the natural world. Now I want to ask you two last questions and then we're going to, we're going to wrap up here, but tell me, 
Um, you, you also work with uh, with bison. How is that issue different than the wolves? I and mean, maybe you can just quickly explain to readers what what uh, what's at stake there. Sure. So we have um, we also uh, we've also done work in Montana for um, an organization called American Prairie Reserve that is building the largest uh, prairie ecosystem in North America. And one of one of the things that we help American Prairie Reserve do is really rethink how they can be a good neighbor um, to their neighbors. Um, and we have worked with American Prairie Reserve um, keeps bison. One of the things that, it, you know, one of the iconic mega, mega fauna of the prairie ecosystem is the bison. Um, and one of the long-term goals of the- It is the mega fauna, right? It is the <laughs> mega fauna, right? Um, until, until, we, until we find a way to, you know, use DNA to re- recreate the woolly mammoth, um, which by the way, in 90 degree Montana heat, I, I just get the sense it's not gonna feel like hanging around there for much longer. <laughs> um, but, you know, one of the challenges is, is the same kind of wolf dynamic, which is to say that if you are running a natural place that has bison and you have livestock literally across the fence, there's always a, there's always a concern that these bison are gonna bring disease, which is not, drawn out by the science, that they could wreck the fences or cause difficulty with the crops or with the livestock. And these are these are real issues on the ground that only really active management can solve. And uh, one of the things we've learned is that American Prairie Reserve has done a, a tremendous job of building up the, the scientific and the conservation wherewithal to do that. But they did a less good job of communicating that they want to work well with their neighbors to maintain good fences. Um, as they say, good fences make good neighbors. Um, I can personally attest to that. You know, and in this case, you know, the American Prairie wants to have the best, um, you know, relationship with their neighbors possible by looking at ways in which they can explain better how a conservation mission is not antithetical to being neighbors with a mission that is built around maintaining your your family business and your livestock business. Um, and it's it's a little bit of a different fight than wolves because really in the wolf situation, we're trying to help the wolves and wolves have no speaker but us. On the American Prairie Reserve side, it's really trying to explain to people and help people perspective take to understand that they have a neighbor who wants to be a good neighbor to them who is doing things that will be in the long-term benefit of the entire, um, you know, central Montana region, but who may be, you know, miss, uh, whose actions or past may have led to misinterpretations. And it's, it's really been our job to help to explain to the broader Montana community that there is really someone who is trying to be a good neighbor Um, and that those people happen to have bison. So we have to explain, what protections are there to allow bison to roam more freely within the American Prairie Reserve fenced ecosystem? So that's again, everything in life is complicated, but it is a um, it's an interesting issue, and you know we've been very fortunate to be able to work in Montana on it. Let me ask you one final question. It sort of brings us back around to the beginning. Um, uh, we we mentioned the the PhD you got in in the history of religions. Uh, or the history of religion, how does that help you as a political consultant um, and, and also in the venture work you do for that matter? Um, uh, what does that perspective lend 
to to the work you do and 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 what what dimension does it add I, look you know the facile answer would would be that knowing about the religions of like 16th and 17th century japan it has absolutely no impact um <laughs> And, you know, that that might be true at the end of the day. But what I delude myself into saying is that being able to studying religion, one of the things I love about religion, what I always loved about it, it is allows you to understand the the fluidity of the possibility of thought worlds in which we live in. And studying different religions allows you to understand other people's perspectives and I will tell you that 100% the most important thing that we have to do professionally is perspective taking, is understanding where people are coming from, why they believe what they believe, and then explaining if we need to persuade something or persuade someone to do something, the only way to do that is to fit what their self-interest is into their belief system and then explain why what we want to do helps their self-interest as they articulated in their beliefs. You can't just reason with people about something that fundamentally doesn't work with the way they believe. You have to get into their head and into their world and explain their self-interest to them there. So from that perspective, I, th I find it invaluable. Bob, thank you. This was terrific. I really appreciate you taking the time. And I hope we can have you back on again soon, probably with Bradley. Um, and talk more about the wolves and, and the other stuff you're up to. I thank you for taking the time. It's, it's been an awesome conversation.